0: Welcome to Building LA, a podcast about the buildings and projects shaping the future of Los Angeles, hosted by me, Sam Pepper. I'm a licensed architect, developer, and project manager, specializing in large complex projects. And as you can probably tell, I'm not a lifelong Angelino. Each episode features conversations with the industry leaders driving those projects forward. We discuss what inspires them, reveal the untold stories behind these impactful projects and talk candidly about the challenges and opportunities facing the design architecture and real estate industry in Los Angeles. Please subscribe to building LA on Spotify, Apple podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. And if you have a few seconds, please rate the show. We really appreciate it. And we'd love to hear from you now onto the episode. Going into this conversation, I wanted to know, how does someone go from being a pro skateboarder to the president of a real estate private equity firm? As unlikely a transition as that is, it is the path that my guest today, Mikey Taylor, has forged. Today, alongside his partners, Mikey leads Commune Capital, a local real estate private equity firm which manages a portfolio of over $200 million in commercial real estate. Part of what sets Commune apart is their focus on financial education. They are founded on a belief that financial independence should be a goal for as wide a demographic as possible. This approach is currently realized through a massive social media presence, but they have plans to expand the educational platform over the next few years through live events, classes, and much, much more. In this episode, we not only explore Mikey's extraordinary background, we also discuss how Commune structures their funds, the types of assets that they are looking for, and why they are so bullish on Southern California. One of their current projects is a ground up co living development in Mar Vista, for which they've partnered with Common as their property manager. Mikey explains the appeal of this project and the reasons that they decided to invest. As you'll hear in this episode, Mikey is a pretty inspirational guy who has achieved a lot before the age of 40. It was a ton of fun to speak with him, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Mikey Taylor, welcome to Building LA. Thanks for having me. So we are going to dive right in. You have a fascinating, very unique background. It's not a well-trodden path, going from being a pro skateboarder to then owning a brewery, to then being a real estate investor and i'm not even going to mention the fact that you're also a city council member for Thousand Oaks are there parallels between all facets of your career to date i mean the idea of like being a
1: skateboarder and you know how that translates into real estate or like local politics it it seems crazy like it seems so far out but i think there's key principles when it comes to success like anything in which you're setting a goal and trying to achieve it i think there's a lot of crossover there right for skateboarding i would say the things that did translate over were one probably resilience like skateboarding's so hard like mm-hmm. it's one of the reasons why I was so drawn towards skateboarding is how challenging it was to even learn the first trick. It's got a high barrier of entry. Oh my gosh, it's so high, right? It took me six months of trying the same trick over and over until I got to land it one time, Okay. right? Yeah. And what that did was created this, I don't know if I want to call it patience, let's call it resilience. Like learning how to put in time of ultimate failure until you mm-hmm. finally get to experience the joy of doing something, mm-hmm. I think that translates into anything. It translates out of sports, it goes into business. It's like anything you wanna build that's somewhat meaningful, it's gonna take a lot of time until you get to experience the upside, yeah. right? I would say the other, the other part of skateboarding is probably the, the just idea of failure. Like skateboarding, mm-hmm. it, it it is way more mess ups than lands. Yeah. And so I got a very good perspective on what failure is in context to succeeding. Mm-hmm. And I think those two things applied to
0: everything else. It's pretty black and white when you fail doing skateboarding too. I mean, it's it's, oh, all, it hurts. it's It's obvious to see
1: and it hurts. That's It's very obvious. So I would say those are probably the two, but like the idea of, you know, I was good at riding a skateboard so that I should be good at
0: business. Like, I don't think that. Yeah. translated so that so you're saying kind of this this also this pain tolerance this ability to like fail 50 times and then still have the motivation to succeed at the end because you know that carrot is gonna be so good whether you're doing a kickflip or you're doing a real estate deal that's that's the thread that runs through potentially that's
1: the ticket and okay. then i think i don't know if it's naturally but i think for you to succeed as an athlete like you're for you to become a professional athlete, you've gotta be pretty obsessive. Like Mm -hmm. it it takes a personality that really, really goes all in. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a good trait to have towards business. So maybe that's part of it in there. But yeah, the failure is a big one because I mean, you're in real estate, you know, it's like, this is brutal. Like it's not easy, nothing comes together. It takes a lot of challenge to finally get something to, you know, pencil. And most people, Get, I think, freaked out by that.
0: Yeah, you know. I think in real estate, what's interesting is that you even if you you have someone analyzing a hundred different deals, there's never going to be one where are like, oh, okay, that is an absolute slam dunk. There's no risk associated with this. We are going to kill it. Right. There's always an aspect of saying, okay, we could like lose our skin on this pretty easily. Yeah. And skateboarding, that's actually a good ton of phrase. Like you're losing your skin a lot. Yeah. Um, that's right. So that's good to build up that resilience. When you ran the brewery as well, was that a key aspect of that? So the risk tolerance that you had allowed you to have the confidence to say, you know, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can run a brewery. Yeah, that's such a good question. The truth is like
1: really looking back, I think there was an element of naiveness Mm. that made us feel like it was possible for us to start a brewery having zero experience. And, you know, we didn't have enough money to start it as well. Like we had to go raise money for it. But we were so hell bent on like this confidence of like, we can do this. Like yeah. if you would have asked me two months into it, right? We knew nothing. Just we had this idea. What, ha- what happens if you fail? I won't fail. Like th- we were so like locked in on success, you know? I think that came from one, having confidence in ourselves, but two, not really knowing how difficult it was really going to be. Mm-hmm. If I would have known that, I don't know if we would have even done it. You know, there, there was an idea of like, how hard could it be, but like, we didn't know what we didn't know. yeah. So we felt like we could do it. And then when we threw, you know, got into it, we figured it out, but it definitely wasn't easy. You know, your partner was
0: Josh Landon. He was one of them. Yeah. One of them. Okay. Josh and Paul. Okay. So was a key part of that, the fact that you had two other people that you could sort of knock your heads together and, and almost build each other up. But I'm picturing that, yeah, you were on a call at one point with the guys, and or and they're like, "Ooh, this is maybe we've taken on too much." And did you have enough confidence between the three of you to say, "No, no, we can push through this. We can tackle it." It felt good having people like next to you that were pushing you as well. Yeah. I would say,
1: so both Josh and Paul, what what they possessed that kind of was this perfect culmination they're both very confident and believe in themselves type of people, right? Like Josh was just like, yeah, let's do this. We're doing it. Like he was very matter of fact. That's it. Done. Paul is the one who's more like motivational. Like Paul just has a gift. Like, dude, of course we're going to do it. Like scare money, don't make money. That was his phrase, right? Like, (laughs) you know, like this is where we're tested. We could do this. But yeah, it's encouraging. I mean, when you're by yourself, it's easy to get stuck in in your thoughts. In your head. You know, and it's naturally you... I think, try to convince yourself out of doing things. But when you're looking at
0: somebody next to you, going, no, dude, we got this. Like, yeah, that's a confidence booster. What has been the thing that's motivated you? I mean, all your ventures have been to varying degrees financially successful, Mm -hmm. but I'm assuming it's not that financial outcome that's the main motivation. Yeah. To tell you the truth for me, like I've never been motivated by money itself.
1: I I remember thinking, like I was probably 18, 19 years old. I'm just skateboarding, I'm not really making any money. I remember even thinking to myself back then, like, if nothing else changes in my life, I'm gonna have a pretty good life. Like, this is so fun. Yeah, I didn't have any money, let's make like 800 bucks a month, you know. But what I would say is, I'm very goal oriented. What I do like is setting a goal and trying to hit the goal. Mm-hmm. And money just seems to be something that is used as a metric of like, mm-hmm. you know, how close did you get to it? Yeah, but. No, I think it's more like I've learned that I really like the process of trying to succeed. What that goal is, sometimes I, I don't even know why I set the goal where I do, but it's more the process. I, like when I hit the goal, I, I it's very short-lived, that kind of feeling of joy. It yeah. lasts that night. You set the next one. Yeah, I have yeah. to. Like I have to be stuck in this like perpetual, like trying to get it. Yeah. You know, and, and then that's what I enjoy. Like I, I do like that.
0: I'm curious when you were skateboarding and you were traveling around the world filming and you know living a life that is a dream to a lot of kids right being a pro skateboarder what was it in you that gave you the motivation or maybe or was there a person that instilled in you the idea that okay this career is going to be short lived there aren't many skateboarders in their 50s mm. and I'm going to need to have a foundation of something to then build upon when I put the skateboard away. Yeah, that's
1: a good question. There was a couple parts to that. Okay. Uh, the first one was I always thought I was going to college. Like okay. that was I, I. I always thought I was going to be an attorney. Actually, I thought I was just going to go to law school. I'm, I'm be sure an your attorney. parents would have been thrilled with that, right? Well, oh. my <laughs> parents. That, that's what they thought I was going to be. Also, like I was very vocal about it. Like this is what I'm going to do. Like yeah, no brainer. Yeah. When I decided to basically attempt to become a pro skateboarder, I was also saying no to college. Right. And my parents freaked out about that one. Like they were very uncomfortable with that. And And there was an aspect actually for me as well that like I I thought that I was saying goodbye to what was going to potentially be a pretty like comfortable life mm-hmm. by not going to school. Yeah, And so I was scared about that. Like I'm not going to say I wasn't. I definitely was. And then the other part of it was like when I started skateboarding, there's no social media, so it was like mm. when you watched pro skateboarders disappear, mm-hmm. they really disappeared, like yeah. you never saw them again. Yeah. And so I think I always looked at that and went, "Dang!" When like pro skateboarders' lives end, it's it's where their career ends. It's, it disappear. It's bad. It's yeah. they're off into the abyss. Yeah. And so I think just you stack both of those into like a young kid's mindset, and mm. I was terrified of what life was going to look like. Yeah. You know, especially like from a young age, thinking like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be this and, you know, my life's going to be good. I was very concerned that I was making a decision that was going to make the rest of my life
0: actually pretty painful. What's well, it's also, I think when you're a teenager, particularly, I think particularly in America, and, you know, I grew up in England. It's a little I think it's a little bit different in England, but in America it's like college or nothing. But at the end of the day, there are other avenues to success and I mean I came out of college like everyone else and you studied architecture. I knew nothing about putting a building together right And I think that's very common with any degree you get. you really come out of it with a very not very tangible skills. you come out of it with a great network right right but there are plenty of other paths to take. Did you have any mentors during that period who were outside of the world of skateboarding who gave you a little perspective when you were traveling to Europe or wherever you were I, filming?
1: Yeah, I, you know what, I, the, the majority of mentors I had were in the skateboarding industry, but I had one who, like when I told my parents I wasn't gonna go, go to college, yeah. when I say they freaked out, like it was not good, right? It sounds like they were good parents. I mean, I'm They sure were that's good that. parents, but they <laughs> were terrified, right? And my mom and dad really, really encouraged me to get help financially. Like if I'm gonna step off and like be a professional skateboarder, I need to have somebody that's gonna help me with my money, mm. right? And so they connected me with their financial advisor. And at this point, like I was making no money. Like this guy should have never done anything with me. He should have said, hey, come back to me in a few years when you're actually making some money. Like, right. I can't do anything Make with this. Make it worth my while. Right. <laughs> yeah. And like, thankfully he was like, oh no, I'll help you. Mm. And so what he really did that was huge for me is he started asking me questions that were very simple that were meant to, I think, start planning out what the future of my life was going to look like. And I couldn't answer any question he asked. It was like, how long can you typically be a pro skateboarder for? I don't know. How much money can you make? I don't know. What do you want to do after skateboarding? I don't know. Like, it was just like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And I left that first meeting, like, just remembering, like, the feeling of like fear, like just being scared, like, Oh my gosh, I don't know anything, you know? And then it was like a year of him, like really working with me, like setting up something as small as like my budget Mm -hmm. or like helping me like build my credit. And then it was like, okay, this is what we're actually going to start planning for. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of comfort I found in that having somebody like at least build me a plan to follow was huge for me. And then everything else came from like skaters. It was like Rob Dyrdek was very influential in my life. Mm. Like, he was the first pro that at least spent time building my perspective on what I could accomplish in the skateboard industry, mm. right? To like really look at having a 10-year career versus mm-hmm. a four-year kind of like hitting, you yeah. know, and I'm out. Yeah, You know, Steve Barra, Jamie Thomas, like there were a handful of, of skaters that ended up being very entrepreneurial that yeah. became
0: influences. Of Leverage mine. the fact that there is a lifestyle associated with skateboarding, which is very appealing to a much wider demographic than people who actually skateboard. 100%. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So when you did transition and you started the brewery, you started raising capital with your partners. Raising capital requires, it's a two-sided venture, right? You have on the one side, you have, your, you, you have the person who's trying to raise capital. That person has to instill enough confidence in the others to be like, okay, we believe in you. We think you can do it. Right. And then your investor has to be a right match to be like, okay, this person is going to be with us all the way, Yeah. no matter what. How did those conversations go? Uh, I mean, clearly they went well in the end. Yeah, we end so okay. So we
1: we had two plans. Okay. We had a plan on if we raised, I think it was about a million dollars, was how much we needed to raise to implement the first plan, mm. and then we had another plan on like if we raised the full amount, which is like two and a half million, we were going to do a bigger system and kind mm. of like be able to to That's launch with the, more
0: the the brewery equipment. Yeah, the so equipment
1: is so expensive, yeah. right? And so. I remember going okay we gotta like go raise money Mm -hmm. right and i don't know through my mind it was friends and family like Mm -hmm. you know i'm looking around at josh and paul and myself going we have no experience in business at all we know nothing about beer like who in their right mind would give us money and so we started with the people who cared about us the people who wanted to see us succeed and I was hoping that the people that were going to give us money were really investing in who we were as people, right? Like, you're talking about three guys who are very obsessive that are going to stop at nothing to succeed. Like, you know, the, the the qualities that they knew we possessed and why we became successful as athletes, yep. I was hoping they would invest in that. And some did and a lot didn't, right? Yep. We pitched everyone. I pitched my parents, my in-laws at the time, my aunts and uncles, all, I mean, we pitched everyone Yeah, and we ended up raising the full two and
0: a half. Right. Wow. And I remember like, I'm assuming it, like, there was a, there was a large number of investors. I'm assuming. Like you, a ton. Do you remember what your smallest amount was? Our
1: smallest investment was 10,000 bucks, I think, okay. something like that. Yeah. And then our largest was about 800,000 actually. Wow. We had one, we had one guy who came in at the end that changed everything for us like so basically when we went after friends and family right and we i think we got to like we got over a million bucks with them because i remember josh calling me i remember i was in north hollywood at, at a skate park actually and he was like dude we're gonna have a business we got to the million you know threshold we have a business we're gonna have a shot at this and then this guy frank foster runs a big family office up north
0: Okay. Nothing to do with foster beer out of Australia. No, okay. no, no. He <laughs> That would have uh, been a great connection. <laughs> yeah, that would have been
1: phenomenal. No, he got a hold of us and he saw something, if I remember right, I think he looked at uh, all of the people that we got to invest with us, right? It was a lot of pro skateboarders, a lot of mm. pro surfers. Yeah. And I think he looked at like kind of the reputation risk, like these guys are putting a lot on the line. If this goes wrong, this could be very public. Mm -hmm. And then I think that mixed with, I think Josh is who pitched Frank. Uh, I think he looked at Josh and kind of just noticed the, like these guys are gonna stop at nothing until they succeed. And then he got behind us, he invested a lot and he was very instrumental in that process. I mean, he was like a, I mean, he's brilliant. He's a very, very sharp guy.
0: And you were doing this in San Diego, which is very well known as being a craft brewery capital of the country, probably even the world. Right. Yeah. So your competition was pretty fierce. As, as competitive as it gets. But we were
1: scared that there was there was a part of us that felt like if we were going to do this, we had to go where the beer was. Like, yeah. if we're going to be competitive, let's go get all the way competitive. Yeah. And so we just felt like we needed to be in San Diego just to really be like a part of the culture and so well, that's why we went down there it was just because like you said that's where the scene was yeah I'm curious if you, did you turn down any investors at that time no because we didn't they... e- I, we didn't even know that that was something you should be doing back then Got like it. the we learned basically everything about business and investors yeah. after
0: we launched in 2015 St Archer the name of the brewery was acquired by Molson Coors yeah for reported a lot of money. Yeah, a lot of money. Four-year timeline. Was an exit strategy always part of the thinking?
1: What we learned when we started raising money is that every investor asks how they're getting their money back. Right. And for us, how we were gonna do that was by selling the company. Like we yeah. we were not building a cash flowing business. Like it was we were building this to sell, but we didn't think it was gonna go so quick. Right. Yeah. Like our original pro forma, it was like, I wanna say We had a 10-year model and we thought it was going to be like pretty hard the first four years, right? Because most, the first four years of business, it's like, you're just trying to get your name out there, right? Six months in, we had to basically redo everything. The experience we had, which is not normal, is the second we opened doors, the thing freaking exploded. Amazing. And we couldn't keep up with demand from the point of opening, right? So it's like we opened doors and it was like, oh my gosh, we're selling everything we can make. And now distributors want more. Okay, we need more money. We need to, you know, increase our production, and we just mm-hmm. increase production. And crap, now there's even more demand. Mm-hmm. That was the name of our, the name of the game for us, which is not normal. That was that was a unicorn style business.
0: Yeah, it was. And did Molson cause? I'm curious about the logistics of it. Did Molson cause approach you, or was that something where you were kind of actively looking at potential investors and acquirers? We had a group that approached us. Okay.
1: It was like a, a MA brand yeah. or a MA yeah, business. Yeah. And they said, look, we work with a lot of the big beverage brands. Mm-hmm. And we think you guys have something special. And we want to basically see if we can do something with it. So we said, okay. And then they came back with, you know, four potential offers. And then it turned into two. And then those two got into a bidding war and then we ended up selling the business
0: incredible looking at the the, how the story has sort of evolved i mean saint archer unfortunately no longer no exists
1: heartbreaking
0: correct i can imagine yeah Uh, it's brutal i mean so from a personal standpoint i'm assuming that the money kind of changed your life
1: yes from a well from a personal standpoint yeah that was more money than we had all made right not even close to that much before yeah and then we ended up paying our investors out who ended up being friends and family a ton of money so right. that felt amazing also yeah. but there is an element of like you were handing your brand off which yeah. very much feels like a child of yours right. to someone else right? right and for us like we were hopeful that you know Miller Coors or Molson Coors was going to be able to do something with this brand that we weren't able to do they were right. going to take it to the next level of course to see them not do that
0: uh, yeah, that hurts. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. I bet. I bet. So I want to transfer now to your kind of real estate journey. Mm. It's 2015. Saint Archer was acquired. You suddenly have an inflow of money. Was it obvious to you that real estate was going to be your next step, or mm. did it require some soul searching at that time about how to kind of start this next major chapter of your life? Yeah, that's a good. And question. how old were you at that point? I was 32 so you're young I was young yeah yeah
1: I didn't think what I'm doing now was going to be in the cars investing in real estate I was already doing I was mm. just doing it passively yeah like, you know, storage was really the big asset class but I always thought real estate investing would be or continue to be in my future mm-hmm. I just didn't know I'd build a business around it. It, it it probably took me about 15 16 months of figuring out what I was going to do okay there was soul searching involved in that I mean, everybody who knows or has seen pro athletes, like most of us don't do well after our careers, right? There's a... Yeah, David Beckham is an exception. There's (laughs) there's an exception to the rule, but if you look at the bulk, right, there's a reason why the majority of athletes go broke. There's a reason why the majority of athletes don't do anything very significant after their career, right? It's really hard to find like
0: the identity of who you are after your craft, Mm -hmm. especially if you've made a pretty
1: big splash.
0: Yeah, and you've still been doing it since you were, you know, a seven child, or eight. You, yeah, totally.
1: So it, it took me a while to figure out that part. Like it, it was not easy for me. Even after there was a a part with the brewery where like I was still, I think, viewed as a pro skateboarder. I was mm. still viewed as a skater. Mm-hmm. After the brewery, there was I wasn't a, I didn't own my business. Yeah, and I wasn't a pro skateboarder anymore. So That's it almost felt like it all kind of fell apart. And then at that same time, I was having a, a lot of challenges with my marriage. It was mm. like my career ended, uh, and just my wife was like not very happy with kind of our relationship. Well, I mean, is that
0: partly because of the amount of just effort you put into a hundred yeah. yeah. like yeah. percent, yeah, hundred percent direct correlation, one million
1: percent. All my attention was going elsewhere. Yeah. so the, her her frustration was 100% valid. Yeah. But I had to work through that. It's like we had to work through our marriage. I had to work through kind of the identity aspect of why I was feeling so lost, even mm. though I was in a pretty awesome position. And then once kind of I worked through those things, then I was finally in a position to figure out what I was going to do next. I just didn't know. Like mm. I actually started down the path of starting a shoe brand. That was what I thought was going to be my next Interesting. Uh, business. Yeah, I, I, I got to the point with it. I had the brand set up. I had samples from China. Like I was like wow. almost a full go on this thing. But I was starting a shoe business to get back at the shoe business that had let me go as a pro
0: skateboarder, right? Oh, it was like a full
1: revenge play. Okay.
0: Yeah, not, not a great <laughs> not a, <laughs> story. No. Like
1: I'm setting up myself for success with that one. Uh, but like, thank God I had the realization in it that like I was not setting this thing up for the right reason. Yeah. And so I ended up basically pushing that to the side and I randomly got a phone call from another athlete who I I had, I had not been pro and I hadn't had a business for about a year at this point. And I had another pro skateboarder who like called me and basically asked how I was doing this. Like, how, how did you lose your career? You have no income coming in. Like, how, how are you, how are you okay? You know? And. I don't know, there's something about that conversation that really brought me back to the beginning with my parents hmm. who sat me down with the financial advisor. And I, I just always looked at that as being a very pivotal moment in my life of having somebody actually build out the plan for me. Yeah. And I think without him, I, I probably would have been down the same path as any other pro athlete. And so I was thinking about what I could do with that. Like, I, I just kept trying to figure out, like, how could I replicate what he did in my life for others? Mm-hmm. And for him, it was it was mainly the education that did it for me, right? Right. And so I kind of came up with this idea that I wanted to create a business that educated people or yeah. empowered people around finance, and then I wanted something that people could invest with me. What I really did like about St. Archer, I liked the idea of bringing investors in, and I especially liked the idea of paying them back. Like, mm-hmm. that was such a sick feeling, Yeah, I that I wanted that to be a part of this business. And then as, as I was thinking about it, I was just kind of like, okay, if I'm going to bring an investment to athletes, that's who I was thinking about in the beginning. If I'm going to bring an, uh, an investment to athletes, what could I give them that will really be there for them during their transition out of their sport, mm-hmm. right? And St. Archer was great, but St. Archer was a very high risk investment. That was majority of the odds are saying we're going to lose your money. Yeah. But if we don't, okay, everyone's getting paid, yeah. right? Where I kind of wanted something that was a little bit more risk adverse. I wanted something that was like they could count on being there. Mm-hmm. And for me, like when I looked at my portfolios, like real estate was it. Yeah. It was a commercial real estate specifically,
0: storage was it. How did you so you got into storage, it sounded like before right. then? So and you were doing that on the side passively. As a passive investor, LP and in, yeah. storage deals. Yeah. Okay. So when you started, was that the plan as well to at least start initially with self-storage or was there no, one, so, when you had the realization was like, okay, we're now we're going to scale this up. We're going to go into multifamily and really way?
1: good question. So when I, when I at least narrowed in the idea that I wanted there to be an investment component yeah. to the business and I wanted it to be real estate, I didn't want it to be storage, even though storage had been so good to me as an investment. I felt like I wanted an asset class that fit maybe more of my skill set. Mm-hmm. And I felt like multifamily actually paired better than storage because something I am good at, I'm, I'm good at the marketing side, I'm yep. good, at, good at creating experience. Of course. And I felt like somebody's home is the ultimate experience. Yep. And so I thought I could have a strategic advantage on the multifamily side and really pair that with my skill that I couldn't do in storage and so we launched our first fund and multifamily was the asset class and we were picking areas that kind of the creatives were going to first mm-hmm. right cuz creatives typically find cheap areas to live mm-hmm. and creatives are really good at making it cool mm-hmm. so we started following them we started buying apartments we started renovating them and then developing
0: them and so took us through that first that first fund Multifamily, which areas were you investing in? The
1: first project that we bought
0: was in Long Beach okay. in California. And then the
1: next one was in, right outside of Cleveland, Ohio, in
0: uh, Richmond oh, okay. Heights. Okay, interesting. So the thesis was not necessarily... Well, it wasn't location-specific to California, well, but it was probably location-specific to a certain type of renter.
1: Kind of. It, it, or it, was there no. a thesis that was no.
0: tangible? Okay, so this is what happened. You're about to get to see like
1: the real, how it works, how this sauce was well, this is, is the made. first fund. So, we've, we've so moved, yeah, we've moved the on. The first fund and the first idea was the, the first project really fit that. And it was really kind of follow the creative, get into an area before the institutional investors come in and, you know, buy something that's, you know, a little bit cheaper and add cool things to it, right? It was, it was almost like trying to create a, almost like a creative hub that somebody lives. Like I I had this idea that if any background could be somewhere that somebody want to pick up their phone and create content, oh, this is a good, this is a good sign, especially for a millennial, right? That was the first strategy. What happened is we got brought a project to us that changed my perspective on where I thought the next opportunity was. Hmm. Okay, What I mean by that, somebody brought us an abandoned Sears building, which was very similar to our strategy on the storage side. On the storage side, we'd buy big box retail sure. that would go vacant. We'd do adaptive reuse into storage, right? Sure. So somebody brought us a Sears building, but it wasn't for storage. They're like, hey, look, we think there's an opportunity to just scrape this and build. I was like, all right, cool. Like I like the idea of this. And then it opened up the opportunity to basically go after this whole mall, the Richmond Town Center Mall, that mm-hmm. basically was going vacant. And when I saw this project, I started thinking, you know what, there are a lot of malls going vacant throughout America. Housing is an issue. I think this could be the beginning of a new platform for us. Mm -hmm. That was gonna be the next main focus, was gonna be going after these malls. And this was a big project. This was a very, very large one. Then years later, we ended up kind of moving back towards California being the focus. Mm -hmm. I like the idea of malls, it's just they're they're large. They're a little bit larger than we can handle. Uh, I have been working on one for the past 4 years. Yeah, so you're talking t- about 300 million dollar projects.
0: It's just it's it's institutional grade investor. Yep, and you're involved with rezonings and it gets very complicated. A lot of these buildings were not built very well in the beginning, so you either have to tear them down completely or you're doing a complete retrofit. Right. So we ended up getting through all
1: of the entitlements. We, we we got it to the point of being able to build, and then we sold it. We it. sold our interest Okay, in
0: which it. makes sense. Yeah. So now you're doing more, I don't want to say traditional, but you're doing multifamily Is right. a focus for a lot of your funds.
1: Yeah, now we're, gosh, i got to like find a streamlined version of saying this. So the financial advisor that my mom connected me with, sure. his brother ran a storage portfolio. Okay. My access or, or how I met him to invest passively in storage was through financial advisor. Okay. Right? Okay. The storage portfolio, the storage firm that I was investing in, we ended up merging. Their company merged with ours in 2020. Nice. And so now the storage fund that I had been investing with is one of our offerings. And now we have we have a lot of offerings now. But it's multifamily and storage are really the two asset classes. Yeah. So there's also storage, but
0: yeah, for, for the conversation of multifamily. It's a lot of scrape and build. You have storage, you have multifamily. The multifamily component I want to talk about a little bit more, you invest primarily in California. Yeah. Right now, we're, it's, we're hyper-focused on Cali. To those listeners who are listening from other states, who the dialogue often seems to be when I jump into a forum, a real estate, avoid California at all costs. It's terrible. The, the barrier to entry is so high, tons of red tape. I have a different perspective. Clearly, you have a different perspective. What's the selling point for you for investing in California multifamily?
1: Oh, first, I just want to say thank you to all those investors that, that think that way. I absolutely love you guys. <laughs> uh, they are right that it is more difficult to do business here. One million percent. Yep. The politics here are not great for no. anything business, really. to entry is high. All of that is correct. But there's two things that have happened because of that outlook And really the action that was created because of that realization, which was we're going elsewhere to invest, Mm -hmm. right? We're going to go where it's easy to invest. And what that did was it created a complete housing shortage in California, right? Right. There's we're we're short by over 2 million units here. Mm -hmm. So there's one part, there's been an opportunity created by that Two, my outlook on kind of the state regulation and all of what I think is bad policy decisions. Well, They keep the competition out for us. Exactly. Right. If there's no competition and we're undersupplied, what happens to the value of our properties? They go up. Yep. So we've done very, very well here being the, you know,
0: counter viewpoint. Mm -hmm. I think there's first of all, LA and the greater LA area, there are so many different areas you can choose from that have a lot of growth. The demand is always high. Right. When you look at a resilient area of the country that can avoid downturns, don't go to Arizona. Come to California, New York, these big cities where there's always demand and the politics aren't advantageous to development. It means that if you can get in and you have the wherewithal to do it, it's much, I don't want to say easier, but the risk that your multifamily development will not succeed is actually lower and has enough resilience to kind of you know, go through the next economic wave right. unscathed because people want to live here. I mean, that's been the one theme of California since, you know, the 1920s is people are always
1: moving here. Right. Yeah. That's I had somebody actually pitch me on a project in Arizona not that long ago. He was like, look, I know you're hot on California, but dude, there's so much demand in Arizona and there's endless land you could just build, right? And his selling point was my biggest fear factor. Exactly. Like, what do you mean? There's you could just build. Like, yeah. why, why? Why would why I want us? to participate in that? Yeah. There's nothing that stops right. an overbuild or or a, what typically is a natural correction. Right. Right. Like, there's an element of California that's like, look, if you're two million units undersupplied, doesn't matter what the Fed does. They can't change real estate the way that they should because the metrics are so far off. Right. Yeah. So now you're basically making the bet, like can California get out of this problem, right? How they're approaching it, I'm not sold on that happening.
0: It'll take a long time. A long time. It'll take a long time and it'll take multiple cycles of political right. elections.
1: But look, I, I like the idea of going into a market and going, wait, that market needs 10,000 residential units. Right. I'm going to
0: add a couple hundred. Oh, yeah, I like those numbers. Yeah, absolutely. You know? What do you look for in a deal is there a sort of a thesis behind commune and the way you set up your funds that you're looking for you know you said about these areas that are kind of up and coming maybe a little bit cheaper that was your first fund, though is it right. is it? Is it evolved now to be these later funds are you looking for a particular type of property yeah this this funds are different than the beginning
1: one we're looking at very undersupplied markets right now mm-hmm. like look I, I know there's a lot of cities throughout california that are undersupplied yeah. but you know the two markets that we're really hyper focused on right now is ventura which last year was the most undersplied county in the entire nation. Yep. And then we're in North Park, San Diego, we have a project out there. Mm-hmm. They're short 108,000 units. So I, the, yeah. the first and foremost, I, I'm really looking for that undersupplied nature yep. because I wanna find areas where the city council is actually getting projects through, mm-hmm. right? Our project in San Diego, the city policy, I don't know when they, last year, it was capped at four stories, couldn't build above mm-hmm. four, right? All of a sudden they go, you know what? You can now go to eight. Mm-hmm. So now we're looking at projects that would never would have penciled, but being able to put that many any more units on it
0: well we got a deal here so yeah. we like that yeah the san diego politics their city politics have been much more uh, dramatically they dramatically improve the mm-hmm. likelihood of success for real estate right. than, than la which is much more incremental and there's bigger issues with zoning that we may right be so
1: ventura county or ventura specifically feels a little bit more like la yeah i, I agree with you on san diego yeah. but that's kind of first and foremost what we're looking for and then next, it really comes into the project. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, what's the... You know, we're looking at like market analytics beyond the undersupply nature. Like we, you know, we do want to see like good major employers. We like to see population
0: growth. Mm-hmm. But there needs to be a return threshold that we can get past in a deal. Is there a particular scale of deal, like a number of units is your, is your sweet spot? And is it sort of... And where in the market, like high-end, middle... Yeah, that's a good question. So
1: number of units kind of you start getting into the small stuff it just gets really tough to pencil right i would say on the low end for us it usually lands around 30 units Yep. where i'd like to see them is somewhere around 100 Mm -hmm. but it's more it's more based on the potential return for us Mm -hmm. there's a a project level return that we have to get past in order to pay the investors
0: what we need to pay them and we need to make money as well and you're always investing as an lp in these. is that correct Us as a firm. Yeah. I'm curious if it varies for a deal. It depends on the
1: deal. Uh, Some of the deals that we do alone, uh, no, we don't. Some deals that we structure with partners, like we'll have developing partners, we'll come in as the LP, but we'll put controls around basically the partnership to allow us to remove the developer without cause. Mm -hmm. So that's a a way that we
0: at least can get comfortable not being in the controlling position or GP of the deal. Then you have a team that is very much understands, can execute on these buildings, run the process. And you have the investment side that can be the LP that is good at like analyzing the deal, correct, checks and balances, et cetera. Yes. So you have both sides of the table right now.
1: Yes. But I would say more of our team is built towards the management of the investment Mm -hmm. than going out and doing our own deals. Like we're, we're, as a firm, we could probably do one deal a year on our own. Got it. But before you sort of would stretch the capacity of just the, the team? As far as, as our team goes, we would have to significantly staff up to do more of our own deals each year. Mm-hmm. But we have relationships going back a long time with some of our developing partners that mm-hmm. we would prefer structuring it this way. Yeah. Uh, we're very involved in the project. We're very involved with them. But at least in this structure, it allows us to do a little bit more scale and really lean on
0: the team that they mm-hmm. built when it comes to getting the project locked up. You mentioned that one of the, your kind of key assets is your, as a person is your kind of ability to brand, your marketing ability. It seems like something that you just naturally kind of love doing anyway. Right. When you're partnering with a developer, they're bringing their own team, they've got their own architect they've got a vision. Are you able to kind of sit back and say, okay, this is great? Or do you, is it, do you get in the mix? Not so good at sitting back. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You're you're an active investor. Yes. Yeah.
1: We have some partnerships. Like we have a partnership on our San Diego project. I don't need to tell them anything. They okay. are phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. And they're a design build company. Okay. So they're the yeah. architect as well. They are really, really good. Like they're better than what I could do. So can I'm you, can good you with them that. give them a shout out? Oh yeah. Christian and Dominic. Okay. They're the freaking, they're the best. Okay. Yeah. They're solid. We have a couple others that I like to be a little bit more involved with because yep. we're outsourcing the design and yep. yeah, I'm a little bit opinionated. So I think it's good, but yeah, you know, it could be frustrating, I guess.
0: Looking at the website, uh, you have a, a deal in Mar Vista, mm-hmm. I believe. Is that under construction?
1: We're under construction. We're supposed to complete that project, probably, I think, May of this year. Okay, so we're getting close. We're getting close. We're about to do the drywall. Let's start laying the drywall.
0: Okay, and Mar Vista different from North Park, different from Ventura. Yes, you're so, you're, you're in the thick of it.
1: Okay, so Marvit So the first fund that we did. Okay, uh, we closed a couple years ago. And then we did a handful of syndications and then we launched the new fund, which is the California Focus Fund. Uh, One of the syndications was a project in Mar Vista and it was three apartments, three vacant apartments that sat next to each other Hmm. on a street called Mitchell. It's the closest cross streets would be what, Sentinella and Washington. Okay. Right. And when they brought it, it, uh, we looked at the deal for a while before we ended up pulling the trigger on it Hmm. because it's a co-living project. It's not a traditional multifamily. Mm -hmm. I loved the location. Like when you start getting into like our original path, mm-hmm. our, olig- our original plan, which was going to the areas that the creators were, yep. the skaters were in Mar Vista like eight years ago. Yeah. Right. It was like Mar Vista was so on my radar. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's starting to get to the point where you could say we're, we're a little bit past the. It, it's
0: an upper middle class area now. Yeah.
1: But what I liked about it, it's, it's really difficult to get three apartments next door to each other yeah all under contract uh, and then we were going to scrape it and build a co-living apartment mm-hmm. it took me a second to get comfy with co-living like in, in the beginning i was i used to work in co-living oh you did i did oh this is this is the convo then <laughs> when when they first brought the project it was my
0: partner that brought it to me
1: i originally said no yeah like i was like no i
0: don't want to do co-living it's it is the opposite of the original vision of california 100%. Like it's it, when you look at like oh the vision of LA and yeah. Southern California. co-living is small units packed together, right. high density, shared amenities. Right. Uh, that's not what California no, is. No, and I was just
1: like in the beginning I was like no way. Like I would never do this. Like yeah. not, I I would not do this. Like why yeah. would I build something that I wouldn't do,
0: right? Yeah. It works incredibly well in Europe and New right. York it's been very successful. Right. So the so you know he's showing me the numbers. Yeah. And he's like, Mikey,
1: dude, 20% increase on NOI if you do co living compared yeah. to traditional. Yeah. I'm like, dude, I don't care. Like, this is, I don't, just think about it. Right. And so I probably spent two weeks reaching out to friends that had nothing to do with real estate. Hey, would you ever, yeah. would you ever use this? Would you ever rent this? And like almost all of them were like, hell yeah, I would. Yeah. And I was like, really? Yeah. And then finally, somebody said something to me. This is what changed my whole perspective on it. He was like, "Look, I know you wouldn't do this now, but go back to when you were 21." Exactly. "Did you have roommates?" I was like, "Yeah, I had roommates." Think about that. Like think about if you had roommates and you got a fully furnished place, you had maid service. Like right. you're talking about
0: like plush living. You take away all the friction points right. that makes a roommate relationship bad when you are 23 years old. Yep. Add to the fact you have shared amenities, you're creating, it's it's this amazing transition between being in college and starting sort of to live a life by right. yourself. It's also great for people who are going through a life change. Right. We had a lot of deforces that were in yeah. because their life has been not turned upside down. Yeah, they want community. They kind of, they kind of want a community right. and they go in. So I was really surprised when I got into it a few years ago that the average age was way higher than you would anticipate. You're like, was, "Oh, yeah, it's probably 25 years old." No, it's actually like 35 years right. old. Right. Yeah. I know. That was the moment that I got comfortable with it. Yeah.
1: And now I think it's the sickest thing. Like, yeah, good. Yeah. You know, I think it's so cool.
0: So this is so this building is complete or this is uh, no, it's still no. under construction. No, 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 no this bit. one's
1: under construction now. Yeah, yeah, we started this one in 20 When did we close on it? The beginning of 22 is when we closed on it. Okay. So we're getting pretty close to wrapping it up. So you were going to operate the co-living as well? Uh, no, we're going to use a company called Common. You're in Common? Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So yeah. Common's been really helpful for us, even yeah. like in, in creating the pro formas and where the demand's at. And even recently, as we got close to finishing, it was like, all right, guys, we just want yeah. to run through the new numbers. We have some new projects that came online.
0: Yeah. And uh, yeah, we're excited to get it up. They also have so much data, Common does, right. about all the co-living developments all around the country to oh, it's phenomenal. prove it's phenomenal. that the metrics do work. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah.
1: So that one, we should be live this summer.
0: Okay. Who is your typical investor? We're going through a period right now where financing is challenging. Mm. What are the challenges that you're trying to overcome right now, today, at Commune?
1: Okay, so financing is, yeah, really
0: hard. It's incredibly hard.
1: Yeah. For all the lenders out there that say you're lending, you're not, just say you're not. It's so (laughs) frustrating. (laughs) Okay, so you need a lot more equity down to get financing right now. So there's that. Second part, 2023... I would say the first six months of 2023 felt like 2008, like as far as raising capital goals. It was, it was brutal to raise money. Brutal.
0: At every scale too. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, right? venture, all my
1: friends in venture, brutal. Yeah. Like it, it, raising money for anything was very, very hard in 2023. Mm-hmm. But the first six months, I would say the last quarter of 2023 it felt like there was a shift that happened mm-hmm. i don't know if it's like people are like finally going we've hit the cap on interest rates and it's all good from this point on it's only mm-hmm. getting better okay i think there's a part of that i think there's a lot of people that have been sitting on the sidelines with the expectation that multifamily, storage industrial that it was just going to get freaking wiped out and there's going to yeah. kind of be blood in the streets We're seeing a lot of investors go. I've been waiting for so long now; it's Mm -hmm. it's not coming.
0: There's capital that needs to get placed. There's capital. You can only wait so long before it needs to get put somewhere. Correct. And so the time is—I think the clock is ticking. Correct.
1: So we have seen a shift, change, Mm -hmm. but it was definitely harder to raise money this year than it's been in a long, long time. Yeah. And so at a time where it's hard to raise money, you need more money down Mm -hmm. to get some of the financing. And probably the worst part, there's more deals today than there's been since we started this business. Yeah. Like deals yeah. are everywhere. So like the idea of like passing on good deals, that feels like post 2008, you know, yeah. it's like yeah, financing and getting capital was the issue back then. It yeah. wasn't
0: deals. I will say I'm very optimistic about t- 2024. Yeah. Because I think we've gone through enough time now where people are just fundamentally going to start getting antsy about placing capital places. Right. And getting more comfortable with just where the economy is at this moment, where the market is, right. and you're going to start seeing a shift. But again, you know, office is still going to be office is dead for a long time, a, a disaster for a while. Although there are exceptions to that, but multifamily storage are going to be successful. I think so too. Yeah, I think so too. So, what does commune look like in five years? In
1: five years, we'll have more of our educational platform built out. Okay. Like in the next five years, want to shift to where the majority of our content isn't just coming through social media. Mm-hmm. I wanna do more live events. I wanna do more stuff with kids. Mm-hmm. I do wanna put more of a focus on that side of the business, which is meant to like empower people. That's exciting. So that'll be one part that will be radically different than today. Employee-wise, I, dude, I, I wanna 10X our staff. I wanna have, yeah. I wanna have more people here, I yeah. wanna offer more jobs. From a size standpoint, we have a goal in the next five years: we'll be managing about a billion dollars. We're wow. about two fifty right now. Okay, I would really like to do that in three, but that's the the goal for the team right now is five. Okay, so we'll be managing more at that point, and then we are planning on launching two Regulation A plus offerings this year. Hopefully, year five. Right now, we have about five hundred investors. Hopefully, when I sit with you, I'll tell you we have twenty thousand investors.
0: Incredible. Yeah, that'll be my, in five years, I'll, I'll text you, I'll let right you know how we're doing. You have an incredible leadership team at Commune. How did that group come together? An incredible bench of people.
1: Oh, so I can't even take credit for this one. This one feels like kind of like more of a God thing. I reached out to my mentor that my parents connected me with when I was starting this business. Wow. And I had, at this point, my entire business plan built out. In it, I had a page that was for fund management. Okay. It was blank. I didn't know anything about funds. And so I sat down with him and I was basically just going to pick his brain. Like, hey, can you walk me through how this side of the business works? Like, I need to know how to like bring people in to build that out. Right. And that conversation ended up, you know, later starting into us starting a business together. Sure. So he came in as more of a silent partner. His brother came in as a partner. And then from there, we... Brought in another partner, Brent, who's kind of our head of development. Mm-hmm. And that was our core team mm-hmm. to start. My COO, and, and who, he's a principal as well, but he's the one who really leads the group from a day-to-day standpoint. He's okay. the, the glue, right? right? Yep. When I met him, I met him in 2017. He was a financial advisor.
0: Okay.
1: Had his own book of business. Okay. I met him and just loved him. I was like, there's something about him. I was like, this guy, like, he's got something. Yeah, you know. So I spent probably a year of getting to know him. And then I spent another year dripping on him over and over how sick private equity was. Right? <laughs> Bro, you don't like advisory business. Get into real estate. Like, this is sick over here. You're missing out. Yeah. And then he gave me this very small window. He just kind of looked at me and went, hey, you know I'm all in on what you're doing. And I was like, really? Huh. And he goes, yeah. yeah. I'm like, come work for us. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, dude, sell your business. I'll make you a partner. Like, come work for us. And he was like, are you kidding? And I'm like, no. He's like, let me talk to my wife. (laughs) And then he ended up selling his whole book of business and came on to be a partner of ours. And that was a big game changer for us. His skill set, I mean, he came from managing thousands of people at a bank and then into the advisory. And he's just really gifted at people. Yeah. And and instilling
0: trust in people. He's so good
1: at it. So he deserves a lot of the credit for
0: how good our team works and who is this person michael Mikolov. okay yeah he's our coo okay rounding out this conversation with all of this you're also a council oh, member yeah why yeah <laughs> i mean you see you have what four kids i have four kids yeah uh, a wife you have this business yeah i mean look i can see the benefits of it particularly when you're in real estate mm-hmm but it's also... If
1: you're not doing any business in the city, <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty major yeah. time commitment. Yeah. So... What was the reason for that? Basically, to go way far back with my story, I'm from a small town, Thousand Oaks Newbury Park. Grew up here. And my wife grew up here as well. Like, that's how we met. We met because our parents both moved into a new community together and they moved next door. So she was literally wow. the girl next door. And then when we graduated, she moved to San Diego. She couldn't wait to get out of town. Okay. And I started skating. And so when I started skating, I started traveling, which meant I was gone six months of the year. Sure. So Thousand Oaks, Newberry Park just became like, you know, where I would go to like recover, rest and store my stuff. And then we linked back up, we started dating. Uh, I convinced her to come back out here. We ended up getting married, we had kids. And our area is phenomenal for kids. Like if you have mm-hmm. young kids, it's, it's amazing. But my wife always was looking at me going, why don't we move? Like, Mm -hmm. there's like, let's go look at other places. And I never wanted to, like, I was like, this is where I live, like this is my home. And so finally, one night I opened my mouth and I said, babe, instead of us like talking about all the things our community doesn't have, like, why don't we like try to be a part of it? Let's go build it out. And I said it just with the idea of like, what could I do to not move? Like, what could I do to stay here? And she looks at me and goes, yeah, okay, what do you wanna do? And I'm like, I don't know. What do you mean? She goes, go get involved. I'm like, what? what?" And then that idea led to like me actually really considering what that would be. Like, how could I get involved? And I kind of landed on city council. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Like what I was thinking back then was, well, city council is responsible for real estate. Like what land is what? Mm -hmm. Like, oh yeah, I know that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Oh yeah, managing. But oh, too easy. I could do that. And then I was like, and it's nonpartisan. Like you're not playing politics like Mm -hmm. you're you're fixing sidewalks and i was like let's let's go and then i found out it's very political and yeah (laughs) you know it's it's uh you people have opinions so that but that was it it was like just wanting to get involved because i
0: don't ever want to leave here so how long have you been on city council one full year one full year okay so not very long no brand new do you think you can make the impact that you had hoped at the beginning
1: you know i hope so uh I'm, I look. I'm only a year in, and and what I'm learning is local government. Government as a whole does not move at the same pace as nope. business, right? So there's that one part, and then the second part is like I'm not the CEO of my city. Like it's not right. like I set the tone and we do what I want to do, right? I'm a governing body with four other individuals that we're voting on policy, yeah, right? Yeah. But I would say that some of the stuff that we've that we're voting on has the potential to make an impact. Definitely for my kids. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hopeful that I can. I mean, if, uh, my whole idea was always, let's serve a four-year term. And by the end, if I feel like you can't get anything done, then I'll can't be done with us, <laughs> you know? Incredible. So
0: and uh, to be determined. Do you, so you sit on all the kind of evening sessions, I'm assuming? Yeah. So we have two, basically two meetings a month, six until sometimes midnight. You've been there, right? A
1: lot I've, of the times, been, it's
0: like I've been there. I've been there in LA. I've been there. I was there in New York. Now, yeah, we've in New just York. been
1: on the other side
0: of it, right? Yeah. And so it's been interesting. It's like it's a fascinating window in a, into a community that is a very. It's just. A, it's just a kind of a bizarre way to spend an evening, yeah, from an outsider perspective, yeah. But the breadth of issues that come up on a local government city council meeting is remarkably fascinating, no matter if you're in Brooklyn, right, or you're in L.A., or right. in Dazelbeck's.
1: Right, right. So I guess my, so far what I've experienced, somebody told me before I went in that I was gonna become a better leader because of this, because I'd be forced to be a servant. A hundred percent, I've felt that over and over. It forces you to actually get involved and hear hmm. people, and that that skill is definitely being strengthened because of this, so I, I like that side of it. The other side is like, we talk about you and I going and working with, you know, planning and doing the planning commission and then city council, right? And it's always been on the other side, which is, I want to do this deal yeah and all the things you're asking for blowing up my deal, (laughs) right? (laughs) To learn what it's like on the city side and how the city looks through it has given me a perspective that I didn't realize how valuable it was for our business. Even when we're now working with other cities, the way that we communicate to the city is so different. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't have had that without this. So it's like I have an appreciation for city staff that I didn't have before that I think has made what we do as a business better.
0: So we may need to do a follow up episode. Yeah, look, like public approvals processes. Oh, that could be such a good one.
1: Like all the real estate investors. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because yeah. It, no, it does.
0: It it's different in no matter what jurisdiction you're in, but it, it does make or break deals. And having understanding the person the the board that is sitting on the other side mm. is critical. Mm-hmm. Understanding the motivations in Los Angeles, it's very very difficult. Yeah. To understand that and sometimes the perspective is so radically different from what you think is the right thing to do not only as a profit enterprise but also as just a individual in the city that wants to build housing right and all the barriers against that you're like what are we doing right like, uh, come on we have a housing shortage like, like what do you guys mean like, well, like these other be- issues are so secondary yeah so, but you know again that's probably a follow-up episode yeah um that's right so mike i have two final questions for you one is, and we are sitting in Thousand Oaks. So it's not technically LA, but mm-hmm. it's it is Greater LA, mm-hmm. and Greater LA is a large area. This is this is part of it. What continues to inspire you about working in and around Los Angeles? Oh. I think it's
1: just the competitive side of it. I like being in areas that have a lot going on mm-hmm. and I like seeing people around me that are really really good at things. Mm-hmm. Like that 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 has always been my model for me to improve, right? Like yeah. stick somebody next to me that's better than me, I'm going to end up being better on the other side of it. Yeah. So I think I just like that. It's like I mean you're talking about the what fifth largest economy in the world. Mm-hmm. Like this is where the energy is.
0: That's where I want to be. All right. And then what are your three favorite buildings or places in greater LA?
1: That is a good one. I had a studio in uh, the Arts District on 4th Street. Okay. And watched that whole area kind of transform. Sure. Dude, I like that. I like seeing kind of pockets of LA start becoming cool during the day. Yeah. Let's see, three highlights. That is not an easy question. One of my favorite places on this planet is Ojai. Uh, it's a little bit north of, of Greater LA, mm-hmm. but I absolutely love Ojai. Uh, the Ojai Valley Inn is one of my wife and myself's favorite places to go. Yeah. So I got to give a shout out to the inn. We have a little area out here called Stonehouse on the corner of, or uh, uh, basically right around Westlake Boulevard, right next to Westlake Golf Course. One of my favorite places to go. Okay. Good place to unwind. Oh, I would it's imagine. super yeah. cool. Yeah, it's super cool. And then my third favorite place that is being built out right now, I'm putting a lot of freaking faith in this one. There's a there's a project being built in Thousand Oaks. IMT is building it. Uh, it was a vacant Kmart. It was vacant for the last 20 years. Hmm. What it's going to become, it's like a big mixed use, kind of a lot of retail, a lot of living, I think almost like 350 units of living. Where that's headed, I'm going to make the claim now that that's going to be one of my favorite places to be in the greater
0: LA area. Okay. I like it. Mikey Taylor, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to Building LA on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. As a bonus, if you have a couple of minutes, please consider rating the podcast and writing us a brief review. We'd really appreciate it. And of course, if you have any questions please don't hesitate to email me at sam at buildinglapodcast.com. Hope you tune in again soon.